This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today is our April edition of Incentives and Instincts, a monthly series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader issues facing our society. Today, we're tackling cryptocurrency. What is it? What do you need to know about it? To help us answer these questions, we called the man who quite literally wrote the book on crypto. Gian Volpicelli is senior writer at Wired. He covers cryptocurrency and politics, and last year published Cryptocurrency, How Digital Money Could Transform Finance, as part of the Wired Guide series. Jean joins us via Zoom from London. Jean, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Oh, wow. I grew up in Rome, which is in Italy, and my parents were both architects. And how did you find your way into journalism? I always wanted to write. My grandfather on, the, on my mother's side was a journalist too, even if he wasn't particularly famous. It was kind of part-time journalist, but still he instilled me with the love of reporting and good writing. And I decided I wanted to write about all, ban- all kinds of different things. That's how I decided. Then I just went through the standard uh, Custo Sonorum of getting a, a degree in international relations in Italy. And then I went to a journalism, journalism school in London. And yeah, here I am. Here we are. And we're here to talk about cryptocurrency, kind of your area of expertise. And Bryce framed the conversation quite well with the question, what problem is cryptocurrency trying to solve? We'll get to that. But before we do, let's just give the listeners who aren't too immersed in this topic a basic definition. What is a cryptocurrency? How is it different than, you know, a fiat currency that we're all sort of more fluent in? Right. Uh, It is a kind of digital currency that is peer-to-peer and can can be exchanged peer-to-peer. It is peer-to-peer. It means that there is no middleman, no intermediary. So this payment doesn't go through a bank or through a payment company like Visa or MasterCard. It is, in a way, a a digital coin. It's not not by chance it's called Bitcoin. The most important cryptocurrency is called Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it, it goes directly from one person to another without an intermediary. It is a decentralized network of computers that collectively validate these transactions in this way. So that, that makes sure there is no single point of failure. There is no single party that can be corrupted or hacked or browbeaten by law enforcement mm-hmm. into stopping or reversing the transaction. That's essentially the initial idea, right? You can pay anyone any sum of cryptocurrency to perform any action, um, regardless of the legality of that action or the sanction status of that person or your sanction status, maybe, uh, which is a kind of hot topic today, um, because there is no single um, middleman, no single um, bank at the center. So let's maybe draw that out a little bit. Like, what are the downsides of having, a, a, you know, a, a middleman or a central bank or a payments mechanism operating as sort of the operating system? Why, why is this 
prospect of a digital currency peer-to-peer superior? It depends where you're coming from, right? And I mean it uh, ideologically speaking. You might not trust central banks for kind of Austrian school of economics reasons, suggesting that uh, inflation is evil and you need to get rid of any kind of political decision-making when it comes to minting coins. So you don't want a central bank. But that's another kind of question. When it comes to just banks or payment companies, the idea is more or less what I gestured towards, uh, which is these payments are supposed to be unstoppable and they cannot be reversed. And so you want to do that if you are afraid of some kind of censorship. So if you are afraid that if you want to buy, I mean, let's, let's take the charitable example. If you want to buy a forbidden book uh, in an authoritarian regime and you want to make sure that uh, the person you paid receives it, you, want, you, you might want to use cryptocurrency, right? You want to make, make sure that the payment is received, it's not blocked, there is no essentially embargo on your payments. Of course, the actual, the actual real-life scenario is that Bitcoin or crypto are very good ways of buying illicit goods, uh, which might be drugs or guns online, and you can't do it through traditional payment systems. So that's the initial example. Of course, there are many other cases in which you might want to do it without going through payment companies or banks or Western Union. For instance, another example that is often cited uh, with some reason, because it's growing in popularity, is remittances, international remittances. So if you're an immigrant, a Salvadorian or Ecuadorian US resident, and you want to send money back home to Ecuador and Salvador, or Tajikistan or Italy, if you don't want to pay international bank transfer fees, you might want to use crypto because the fees are theoretically lower. Every 80s action movie, I feel like, uh, there's like a big scene where like the drug kingpins or the gun dealers and the buyers get together and they have all these big giant briefcases full of cash. The problem with that is that it becomes the, the, the centerpiece of a movie, right? Is you come in, you know, this is where the meat happens. So you're vulnerable to law enforcement, or you're also vulnerable to a rival gang that wants to come in and steal all the money because you have it all sitting right there. And it's real uh-huh. currency and it's real cash. So with, with cryptocurrency, now I can do yeah. this over the internet. Uh, I can send you the big chunk of money. And, you know, importantly, uh, it's not going into a bank account or through, you know, all, everything that goes through a bank eventually goes through a central bank. And so the government can say, aha, that person's account is bad. Uh, don't let any money go into that account or, oh, there's money in that account. Let's take it. So the idea is, is it's the big drug dealers cash scene. So essentially, I just anything where people are actually normally want to use cash, but we can't because we're trying to do this over a long period, long distance, or there's just risk in carrying cash. So the problem we're solving is, hey, I want to engage in transactions that would ideally be done with cash. But now I don't have to use cash. Is that is that really the idea? Yeah, in in a way, that's that's the answer. Of course, this is just how maybe the ideology, the ideology behind Bitcoin started. It's not necessarily about money, but it's about having uncensorable forms of payment. Now it's it's driven. I'd say, I'd say by other forces. The popularity of Bitcoin and popularity of crypto is driven by several several different forces. This was the initial case study. So 
uncensorable money. And then, of course, there was the monetary policy aspect in which, which we kind of touch upon very briefly. There is no central bank. There is just essentially computer code emitting new, uh, a certain, a lot of the amount of coins at regular intervals. So, uh, and in, in the case of Bitcoin, actually, there's only a certain amount of Bitcoins. And that's uh, theoretically, I'm not even sure I agree, a way to uh, make sure that central banks' political decisions don't debase the value of your money. There are so many takes on that, I'm not even sure that makes sense for an economist. I wanted to pick on something you said, though, which is interesting. I was listening to this podcast many months ago, an interview with uh, the creator of a cryptocurrency network called Ethereum. He said something to the fact that the kind of scenario you described in which there are a lot of gangsters with a lot of cash in a warehouse somewhere uh, on the outskirts of, Pens- of, of, of Philadelphia or New York usually is conducive to a lot of violence because someone will try to s- snatch that suitcase of cash. And Bitcoin and crypto, in a way, will minimize that kind of gang violence. I'm not sure whether they buy into it, but it certainly is provocative, is thought-provoking. All this is predicated on the fact that I have some notion that this is worth something. But we have a problem, which is that these cryptocurrencies, they fluctuate in value enormously. Is it really that useful as a, as a medium of exchange? If we're going to you know, set it up as, look, it's a medium of exchange, and this is, you know, we're just going to replace cash on the internet. Essentially, my problem with a lot of this stuff is I feel like it creates this world where we're seeing Super Bowl ads, basically just trying to keep people putting money into it so that it keeps the value at something that works. But what happens if all that goes away? I think you're right. I think that it works as a currency in a very few select cases. Uh, As I said, of course, in some situations in which the alternative is worse uh, because or or there is no alternative. Uh, But in general, I'd say that speculation is driving a lot of what the conversation around crypto is about. It is mostly about speculation. I'm not sure many people use Bitcoin for payment. They use it mostly for investment. They use them on derivative markets now. Of course, again, there are some tail end scenarios in which crypto might help. I was speaking both with, U- with Ukrainian and Russian people I knew. Russians, in this case, they were running away from Russia because they didn't want to, to be there when, the Putin, when Putin's ship sunk. What they decided to do was to put all their savings into crypto because they knew the rubble would collapse. Something similar also happened with some Ukrainians I knew just because they didn't really trust the monetary policy of, the, of a wartime government. They, they were afraid that there would be some kind of problem there. So maybe if you are a Ukrainian woman, because most, most men, I don't think they can leave, uh, or a Russian self-styled or, uh, or real uh, dissident, Leaving Russia, Bitcoin might be a safe way to, or cryptocurrency in general might be a safe way to stash your savings. But in most cases, you won't use Bitcoin either as a medium exchange or as a storage of value. Mostly you use it as a speculative investment. And that's kind of the, the story I'm hearing from kind of colleagues in France who feel like they, they sort of feel this pressure that they should 
be in some cryptocurrency. So they'll stash the money in Bitcoin or Ethereum. And I don't think it's a very kind of conscious decision other than just feeling like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of money going to the space. I'm concerned about inflation. You know, the stock market seems overvalued. So let's just put some stuff in there and see what happens. And it doesn't really seem like most of those folks that I talk to are kind of falling into the either the social, political, uh, the ideological um, notion or trying to you know engage in these illicit transactions. They just sort of feel like, well, there's something happening there that, that I should be a part of it. I don't want to miss out. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think that's, that's a very fair description. And the whole craze around crypto-adjacent uh, artifacts like NFTs absolutely, or even the metaverse narrative, which you know, in a strange roundabout way is also linked to crypto. But again, I'm not uh, anti-crypto. I, I think that there are some very specific scenarios in which crypto, specifically Bitcoin, because of its network effect and its vast uh, acceptance among crypto enthusiasts and even some companies now, uh, mm -hmm. they do have some applications. We'll be back to our conversation with Bryce Ward and Gian Volpicelli after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. I'm Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward and Gian Volpicelli about the fascinating world of crypto. And so from your seat as a journalist, I mean, I'm starting to see some journalistic momentum in some ways. Like it becomes something, crypto and NFTs become something that everybody wants to cover. How do you sort of feel about making choices about what stories you write about and what the main issues are to focus on? Yeah, um, myself, I'm very, uh, very finicky. Uh, I tend to write only about those projects, those, not projects, those stories in which there is a clear political slash social repercussion. Okay. So one thing I covered pretty closely was the whole debate around uh, Bitcoin mining. Yes. And specifically the regulation of Bitcoin mining first in China, then the fallout, the regulation and the ban on Bitcoin mining had uh, on neighboring countries such as Kazakhstan, where there was actually a, an energy crisis, partly possibly precipitated by the influx of Bitcoin miners. A lot of crypto networks and Bitcoin networks specifically are powered by this very energy intensive uh, process of computation. So you need a lot of specialistic computers and data centers, and they have to burn a lot of energy to kind of build the rails on which the Bitcoin uh, network functions mm -hmm. uh, and that that can consume i mean i think it consumes more or less the yearly energy expenditure of last time i checked it was sweden but wow. it changes all the time yes. it, every day it becomes larger and it, it reaches another milestone and reaches another country so yeah um i tend to look at those things so regulation, political repercussions, extremism and crypto so i was looking at the rise of, of so-called crypto crowdfunding campaigns for political purposes. And of course, yeah, when the Ukrainian invasion happened, I also looked at how 
crypto could or maybe could not play a role in sanction circumvention. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of stories I'm mostly interested in. NFTs, I, I like them because I like absurd events. I'm a bit of an absurdist. So yeah, when people splurge $69 million to buy a, a digital work of art, which can be, as everybody said, can be copy-pasted very quickly, very easily, I, I have to write about it, right? I like that you put that in the absurdist category because, uh, yeah, it's absurd. Although any price of art is could be argued to be absurd, right? It's it's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, it is true. It is true. That's that's what I find fascinating because, in a way, the whole crypto. If you look at crypto with um, sort of ironic eyes, you will see that it is a caricature of a lot of of the pillars of society. So it's a kind of caricature of money in a way and nfts are a caricature of art because they say well yeah i mean who are you to decide that this picture of a monkey is not worth three million dollars there's a strange anti-expertise anti-elite uh flair to the whole movement uh, i'm not sure how much of that is intentional how much of that is a pose how much of that is people just convincing themselves they are fighting some kind of good fight but certainly is there. Well, that's kind of an interesting point in that there's this anti-institution kind of uh, mindset in all of this. And one way to kind of look at currencies in general is that, you know, over the arc of history, they've, they've kind of gone to platforms that each successive innovation has required more trust in the system. So, you know, currency started out as food. We could exchange food and that has immediate value. Then you know, minerals and stones and things that could maybe have some sort of value to state-based currencies that, you know, we sort of put our faith in. And so at every stage, not necessarily every stage, but this sort of increasing need for trust in the system has been a trend. And now all of a sudden we have this technology and the promise of this technology is to remove the need for trust from the system. So how, how do you sort of feel about the kind of, I don't know if it's anti-historical, but, but like, don't currencies function better when we have trust in the system? Is, is there a benefit to removing trust? Or, or how do you view the role of trust in, in an exchange system? I think that you picked on something we didn't touch upon what we should have, which is that what crypto is supposed to be about is the removal of trust, right? Mm -hmm. So they think we can't trust anyone. We can't trust governments not to spy on us or not to block our transactions, not to debase the value of our money, not to even block our payments. And so we have to create these economical, economic systems which are fully encoded in computer code so that everybody can know exactly what they're getting into when they are interacting with these systems. The, the idea is that you don't have to trust anyone else to comply with those instructions. Does that work? I mean, not sure it works because, of course, computer code is fallible, it's hackable, it can also be interpreted, and so there might be loopholes there. Crypto, in a way, at the beginning, though, it was about removing human error or human corruptibility or humans in general. They, they believe that the best kind of government, the best kind of system is an automatic one, one where you don't have to trust anyone just because people can't be trusted, essentially. If we go back to the big question, right? What is this problem? What is this what is the problem it's supposed to solve? You get there, okay, well, maybe that makes some sense. But then as you point out, 
you still have to have trust along the way, right? Like there's been many cryptocurrency yeah. scams. So, you know, I, it's not clear that this solves a problem that I feel like needs to be solved. We keep searching for a problem that this needs to solve. And every time we go, it finds one and then it doesn't do that. So it moves to another, which is why I think it goes back to the, you know, what we we're talking about earlier is that it's just, it, it really is to me, it's mostly a speculative bubble with a little bit of maybe if it survives the speculative bubble, which it may not. And what happens to all of this when it crashes? Does it still find a use? I'm still waiting for somebody to provide me a significant problem that this will solve that is immediate and doesn't have an alternative solution. And I just don't see it. Yeah, there was, I think, one project whose name now escapes me, actually, that was supposed to use crypto as an incentive system for you to put out a router to create a free internet mesh network in, I think, in a, in, a, in a neighborhood of New York or something, and essentially create a free broadband for everyone by rewarding people with this incentive system. That's another kind of, that's another aspect of it. It's called cryptonomics or tokenomics, in which you use incentives to get to achieve desired outcome just by minting what are declaredly speculative assets, but linking the speculation to good outcomes. Every time somebody comes up with a new thing, well, an NFT that will allow you to do all these other things, I'm like, well, isn't that just like a membership? And it's not, and it's not harmless, right? Like, as you mentioned, there's an environmental cost that's tremendous, but also like a speculative asset bubble is very dangerous. It causes real harm when it busts, real harm to the real economy and not just to the people who invested, but to other people who are downstream of that investment. And so, you know, I want there to be a killer app given how much money is in this. But given that I don't, I'm very concerned about, you said, the social and political consequences not just of it existing, but of the risk that we are taking by having Super Bowl ads that are basically, hey, FOMO, don't want to miss out on this this thing, which is never a good reason to invest in something. I, I like to be honest here. I I just have a lot of fun reporting on it. Uh, so uh, in a strange way, uh, a bubble in the making, it is an interesting thing to watch. Uh, of course, one has to be honest and point out that it might be a bubble, it might burst, it might make a lot of damage. But as a journalist, it is fascinating to see how this world is evolving, partly because I am, as I said, I'm a lover of the absurdist and the continuous and fractures, twists and turns of the, of the industry have been a wonder to behold, even if I'm very conscious that there might be some big, big problems and so, of course, it's, it's journalists' work. It's their job to hold these people accountable, and we do our best. But on the other hand, it's, it's pretty fascinating to, to watch. Oh, it's totally fascinating. I mean, <clears throat> everything is involved here, right? Like, you're talking about fundamental pillars of economy and society that are being laid bare in, in new and interesting ways. It's certainly a fascinating thing to study. I'm just still waiting for someone to explain to me the why this is a solution to a problem that's better than any other solution that we have. Well, thinking about a problem that, that might be solved, you know, in our remaining time is, you know, if I were running a central bank in the United States or China or any other large economy, I'd, I'd be maybe thinking about like, 
what are some of the innovations in cryptocurrency? What are some of the technologies that maybe I can bring to my fiat currency? So do you think about that at all, Jian? What are you, nation states, are they going to adopt any of these technologies to make the U.S. dollar digitized or, or, you know, or, or moves like that? What, what could we see in the future along those lines? Yeah, I think that uh, the element that is most likely to be borrowed by uh, so-called central bank digital currencies, which have been launched in some countries, like I think China is trialing one or piloting it on quite a large scale. Uh, Bahamas, I think, also did. And there will be possibly pilots in the EU and the UK. Uh, one element that might be used is a smart contract uh, element, so the programmability of transactions. Um, just because, yeah, essentially that, that's what I'd be hearing. Uh, they want to create money that is more programmable and that can be programmed to do certain things, which might be also just abide by monetary policy objectives, right? So if you want to uh, extract in, uh, passive interests from the money supply, you might just send a command to all the central bank digital currency wallets around the world and they will, uh, they will comply with that. Or on the other hand, if you want to uh, send everyone uh, a government st stimulus check uh, for whatever reason, it might be easier to do it through a central bank digital currency. That's some of the things I've been hearing. I think Bryce's point is pretty it's again very fair because I've also heard a lot of people in the Bank uh, of England, but also elsewhere, that they're kind of tinkering with these things. They're not themselves sure it's going to be it's going to be a game changer. Uh, of course, if I were China, that's a different kind of story, right? Because as we, we didn't say that, but blockchain or anyway crypto. Technology is also very visible. You are pseudonymous. People theoretically don't know your name, but every single transaction is visible on the network, apart from a few niche privacy, privacy first cryptocurrencies. So yeah, if you want to do it in China and use it as a, as a, as a tool of surveillance or even of uh, social control, of course you can do it and you can do it very well with this kind of technology by removing the privacy aspect, by removing the anti-censorship aspect, by entrenching the surveillance aspects and the exclusion aspects. Maybe you can decide that every all payments coming from the wallet of someone who just insulted she won't be able to buy groceries on, for one week and just, just, just inventing here. But uh, it really depends on what kind of objectives you have. You have. You know, Xi'an, I, I have to say, every time I get into a conversation or read something about uh, cryptocurrency and all these associated issues, I sort of end it feeling like I have more questions than I've received answers. And uh, th th that's what's so, I mean, as a journalist, as you said, it's, it's a fun topic to cover. And so I, I kind of appreciate that and appreciate you sharing your time with us, answering the call from, from Montana all the way off in faraway London and uh, sharing your expertise with us today. Any, any parting words for our audience? Well, thank you very much. Let's just quote the famous crypto mantra, WGMI, we are going to make it. <laughs> well, that's a good mantra to live by these days, that's for sure. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.